going to ask you to open it to the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and uh, amen, chapter 20. And uh, this message today uh, that I'm going to share with you, um, I, I, it's, called, it's in a series we're starting here called Unstuck, Being Unstuck. And uh, I feel, I talk to a lot of people every week and pray for a lot of people, a lot of people. And uh, folks really feel uh, like they're stuck. Their, their lives are stuck right now. Um, they feel, you know, they, they uh, you know, we've had that phrase, they've said, stay at home in Michigan. For most people, it's stuck at home. And uh, it's not really stay at home because they don't want to be at home. So they just feel like they're stuck at home. But um, and so as I was praying this week and just really seeking the Lord about this, I, this series started unfolding, and, and uh, one of the things that really challenged me in it was today is uh, the idea of, I don't know what to do. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know what to do. Um, I've been there a whole bunch of times in my Christian faith uh, as a believer, uh, points when I didn't know what to do at all. I mean, I was really, really struggling. And uh, the struggle is real. There's no doubt about it, you know, when it hits. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about some things that, that God has shown me to be able to do to get out of those struggles. And, uh, you know, one of the things, I wrote a book several years ago, um, uh, when, you're, when the dam breaks and your boat won't float. And, uh, and uh, it's available on Amazon, actually. It's a good book. Uh, I might preach a little bit out of it during the Unstuck series, but... In that book, it talks about, I talk about my daughter's accident and how devastated Sharon and I both were. Um, and uh, she's going to be up here with us this week. And, and uh, you know, she went through such a traumatic deal herself. But what she was going through, Sharon and I, we made it all about us. It all ended up about us and what we were going through. And uh, they had to basically pry me off of my daughter. How old was she when all that happened? She was five, eight, eight, and uh, that uh, they had to pry me off of her when she went into surgery. Um, you know, I cried. I sat at the end of her bed for days and uh, refused to go home, didn't eat, uh, just prayed and told God, I need answers. I need answers. I don't know if you've ever been in, you maybe didn't go through a situation like that, but maybe you're there today where like, God, I need answers. I need you to show me something I don't know what to do. I don't know how to deal with this. And that's why we called it When Your Dam Breaks and Your Boat Won't Float, won't float because the book really talks about how that everything you used to use isn't working right now. And, uh, you know, uh, for some people, you know, you've probably had the, this happen in your life where, you know, you did certain things. When bad things happen, you do certain things to try to fix it because of your experience. Everybody's had experiences, right? But those experiences aren't always going to help you with things that you're about to deal with. And so the challenge that we deal with is, is that, you know, that life is dynamic, not static. Life changes. Things are different. And we're different. And we have to adapt. And we have to learn to overcome. You know, I'm a big believer in the Marine Corps training that says innovate, adapt, and overcome. I teach my staff that, that when we face uh, difficulties, when I do leadership classes, that, you know, we might look at it and go, well, there's no way we can do it. Well, I don't believe there's no way, okay, ever, ever. 
and uh, there's got to be a way. We just don't know it. So we innovate, we adapt, and then we overcome. We're going to beat this thing. So uh, that's what we do, and we, as a, our team has been really phenomenal at doing that. So in this passage in Chronicles, it talks about a moment when, man, everybody's stuck. I mean, it's a bad deal. And uh, you might be familiar with this in Second Chronicles. And uh, we'll just start with verse, um, verse 1. And it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they're in Hazan Tamar, which is in Gadi. And Jehoshaphat got afraid. Anybody ever been afraid? I mean, I'm not asking you to admit it. I've just, anybody ever had a moment when you were like, oh no, this is it. This is bad. I don't know what we're going to do. Well, Jehoshaphat feared, but here's what he did, and this is always the key. He set himself to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. All right? So there's two things that he determined that he was going to do. One is, is that he set himself to seek the Lord. And the second thing was is that he proclaimed a fast. So here's one thing I want you to keep just in the forefront of your mind. When you are in a crisis, life cannot go on as usual. See, I think at times what ends up happening with God's people is, is that we're like, well, Lord, I got stuff I got to do, so I need, I'm really bothered about this, but I want you to tell me while I'm doing all my other stuff. And what God says is, stop all the stuff. And stop, if you really want an answer, you're going to have to totally focus on getting your answer. So that means shut off the TV. That means shut up, quit going everywhere. That means put away the food and take time to seek the Lord and use that time to really call on the name of the Lord. Now, if you're in a place right now where you're stuck or you're in a place right now where you're like, I don't know what to do. The question that you the first question I want you to ask yourself is one. Have you closed everything down so that you can seek the Lord? Have you closed everything down so you can seek the Lord? Two, are you fasting? Now, I'm not you can fast however you can fast. All right. Whatever works for you. You know, that might be just giving up sweets or it might be giving up bread or it might be giving up whatever, giving up meat. It could be just eating salads. I, I mean, I don't really care what the fast is. It could be a total fast where you just drink water. But look, whatever that is, how serious, because see, at this point, not that you're trying to get, not that you are going to get God to answer you because he's going to go, well, I'm really impressed with your fast. Because he's not going to be impressed with it. Because the fast doesn't have anything to do with God. The seeking the Lord doesn't have anything to do with God. You don't have to earn God's answer. Look at your neighbor and say, you don't earn his answer. You do not. You do not earn an answer. Okay? You do not earn an answer through fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord. What you do is you silence your crazy mind. Fasting is as the flesh becomes weaker... Your spirit begins to become more stronger because it, the voice of your flesh is loud. The voice of your flesh is all those experiences you've got, all the nonsense you've dealt with, all the, the fear, the emotions, all the stuff that you've gone through, all the pain and frustration is all there in your flesh. And so what we have to do is we have to put, we have to weaken that in our lives. We have to weaken that resolve of emotion 
that's in our lives where the realities of what we've dealt with. And when we weaken that through fasting and seeking the Lord, then what happens is then the Spirit can begin to, to speak. Let me say it like this. It's hard for God to talk with you when your mind is on everything else. It's hard for God to talk with you. Not that he can't, and not that he won't. But when our mind is set on all kinds of other things, and, you know, I got this problem, I got this thing, I got this financial deal, I got this family, all those things going on, what ends up happening is we become confused, we become convoluted, we become uh, distracted, and look, I'm telling you, in the midst of that, it's hard to hear the voice of God. It's hard to hear the voice of God. And uh, it's not that God couldn't just intervene, come down, say something to you face to face. But look, here's the thing. Even if God did that, even if God did that for your life, just, I mean, he just bang, you went home today and he was waiting at home for you. All right? I've had the instances where I have, I have had what, what they call is that, that manifestation where an f- actual physical presence is in the room, it will not go the way you think it will go. One is your flesh trembles at the presence of God. So don't even think. I had a situation. I know some of you might believe this, not believe this, but I actually talked to an angel. And he didn't look like an angel, but I knew it was an angel. And it scared, it put the heebie-jeebies on me. Okay? One, if you're in your house and all of a sudden somebody appears, you're not thinking, oh, how cool. You're thinking, where's my gun, right? Where's my gun, right? I mean, come on. You're not thinking, oh, and, and, and look, angels, folks think like angels will show up with big wings or look like fat babies or whatever. I don't know what you think an angel will look like, but they don't. They, don't, they manifest as all kinds of things. They look like people. When Abraham talked to angels, they didn't look, they looked like people passerby. He just somehow knew that. So I had that happen, and, you know, like I couldn't think. I couldn't, my, my brain couldn't connect everything I want. You know, I had big questions, and I couldn't, couldn't say the things I wanted to, to be able to say. And I'll come back to this story a little bit later on. But, but I mean, it was a really, but I've only had that happen one time. The only other time I ever know about angels manifesting, we never saw them, I never did, but was when Chuck and I were in Rwanda and we were in Kigali and it was in the, I mean, it was in a crazy circumstance where kids had, I mean, we're talking about little kids that had, uh, uh, what are those guns they had, the big rifle, huh? AK-47s that they had standing around. I mean, it was there was no, it was dark, it was, it was a crazy situation. And when it was all over with, what happened at the end was is that nobody was singing, but we could hear angels singing in the PA system. I mean, it was really bizarre. You say, well, that, well, where's that in the Bible? I don't know. I don't know that PA systems are in the Bible, do you? I don't know where that verse is. But I know this, God does stuff. You ever wonder... You ever wonder why the word wonder is in the Bible? Because it makes you wonder. That just don't seem right to me that that happened. It didn't seem right. You know, and if I was writing my own story, it would have been a totally different way for God to manifest. But I can tell you that there were massive healings in that building that night. 
I mean, major, massive healings. Cripples were healed, dancing in the aisles. I mean, just incredible stuff, I mean, that took place. And so, um, and other things I could talk about. But, but I've only had that happen a couple of times. I mean, nothing like every day that happens. Specifically, when we, fa- when we have faced, Sharon and I have faced difficulty that was overwhelming, what we have had to do is separate ourselves. Not separate ourselves, not quarantine ourselves from other people, but to quarantine ourselves to God so that we could hear the voice of God. Joseph had got, he was afraid, he was scared, he didn't know what to do. This was, they don't have a manual for kings how to deal with this. And he gathered all together and asked help from the Lord and, and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So everybody got involved, the whole family, everybody was there. Jehoshaphat, in verse 5, says he stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he goes on and he talks about, God, you did all this in the past. You did all these things, all these mighty works, and you made promises that you would do these things. And then, he, then you, come up to, um, you come up to verse 12, and he says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this multitude. They estimated that the army that was coming against them was a million soldiers. A million soldiers. He said, "We three different armies. We have no power against this multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Notice here in the middle of all that, we don't know what to do. Now, that's tough, especially, it's, tough, it's not just tough for men, it's tough for women, too, to just say, I don't know what to do. Because, see, here's the problem. As long as we sort of have an idea of what to do, we'll still try to fix it ourselves. But when we hit that moment where we go, I don't know what to do. I I am totally lost here. I have no idea how to fix this, how to make this happen. One of the things I learned, uh, especially with farming, I've learned this, but but I've applied this in my ministry life too, is, is that when I'm working on something and I hit a dead end, it's best to just walk away from it for a while. Don't keep trying to, all you're doing is make it worse, messing with it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You that work on vehicles, you know how that can be, man. You can start digging in. And, you know, I remember as a kid, my dad decided, was, was working on my, I had a Dodge Dart. Anybody remember Dodge Darts? I had a Dodge Dart. My dad, it had a distributor. They don't have those anymore, but had a distributor cap. And, and uh, of course, that fed the spark plugs. And, you'd have to turn that distributor cap for the timing on it. So my dad, he was out there, and he thought he knew what he was doing, and he started, he goes, well, this thing is missing. we got to get the timing right. And he didn't have a timing light or anything. And so uh, I know they they don't even use any of that stuff anymore, I don't think. It's all computerized now. But So he's up there, and he's loosened the distributor, and he starts turning it, and he goes, well, that sounds a little bit better. And then the next thing, man, flames are shooting out of the top of the carburetor, and uh, he didn't know what he was doing. You know what he ended up having to do? Stop what he was doing and get a hold of somebody that knew what they were doing. For you and me, the number one person that knows what to do is God. It's not your neighbor. It's It's not your pastor. I mean, sometimes people ask me, well, what do you think the Lord wants us to do? I don't have any idea. Pray? Well, we prayed. Okay, did you pray? Like, did you seek the Lord? How long did you pray? Did you take time? Did you set aside time? Did you fast? Did you get before God? 
did you really take the time and separate yourself to find out God's guidance on this? I mean, how serious are we about getting to the answer that we need? If we're real serious about it, then we'll do what we have to do to get there. Amen. When we don't know what to do. We don't know what's next. We don't know how we're going to get through this. So when you're in those situations, I want to just encourage you this morning about some things that, you know, uh, I believe there are foundational things that you can do while you're seeking the Lord. And I think they're key. I think they're, re they're really key. In fact, I'm going to share three of them with you today. Well, I'll probably only get through one. I'll have to continue this on next week. But, but uh, I want to share with you some key things that I believe are what I'm going to call core things to be able to help you when you're facing a situation where you don't know what to do. So if you're taking notes, this is a good place to start taking notes. I want you to look at, at chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. And I want to talk to you about the triple threat. Everybody say the triple threat. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. So, you know, most of you know that I was a basketball player. I, I was. I don't play very much anymore. Um, but when I played, I played all the way through high school. Um, I started in college as a sophomore, played, lettered three years, played my freshman year. So played overseas, played in Brazil, played in the Philippines. I mean, I had quite a... I had, a, I had a great career, played on a lot of county league teams around here, played in state tournaments, and uh, then I coached. Then I got into coaching and uh, coached a girls team that was, they were like 0-46 when I started coaching them. They ended up being, I think, 12-9 and 9 by the end of the season. Um, they had, some of the girls on that team had never won a game, never won a game. And uh, when you go into a circumstance like that, they're the first thing any coach will tell you is, do they know the fundamentals? Because if they don't know the fundamentals, I don't care who it is, what team it is, what player it is, there are basic fundamentals that will make you successful. Basic fundamentals that will make you successful. They're key. And if you don't know those fundamentals, whether you're LeBron James, you're Michael Jordan, you're super talented, uh, if you don't know the fundamentals of this, you will lack in the game, even though you could be extremely talented. So when I started coaching, and of course I did the same thing with the boys when I started coaching them, and I coached, I think I had like a 10-year span of coaching, pretty close, somewhere in there, um, where I coached uh, high school basketball. And then I coached at college for a while and, uh, and uh, enjoyed all of it, but I just didn't have time to keep doing it all. The fundamentals, one of the basic fundamentals of basketball is what they call the triple threat. Now, the triple threat is three things, okay? You have the ball on offense. When you do the triple threat, there's three things you can do. Jeff, what are the three things? You know what they are. You played. What are the three things in the triple threat? You can dribble, Pat. Thank you, Morgan. You can dribble. Thank you. <laughs> You can dribble, right? You can, Morgan was my manager for years, weren't you, on the team? You could dribble, you can pass it, or you can shoot the ball. Now, 
when you are in a triple threat, they call it the triple threat position. The triple threat position is not an upright position. The triple threat position, now watch this because this is very important. The triple threat position is, is that you have to be down. You have to get your core involved. Your core is going to be from here to here, okay, here to here. You've got to get your core involved, and when you get your core involved, you that's where all your strength is at. Your strength is not in the extremities, the arm. You could have big arms, but if your core is not involved, it won't matter. So you, you have to have all of that involved. The key in using the triple threat spiritually, okay, the triple threat is, first of all, knowing that there is a triple threat, and second is knowing that to use the triple threat, you got to have your core value. You got to have your core strengthened. You got to be in the right position. If you're not in the right position, you know, uh, if you if you're in a triple threat and you're upright, okay, and you start pivoting away from a defender, if you're upright, the defender could not. You could fall over. Your balance would be off. But when you're down, in position. Okay, and we're not doing a basketball lesson, so just stay with me now, all right? Because we're going to make this spiritual. When you're in that position correctly, the wider the base, the stronger, right? The wider the base, the stronger your core is. Okay? So now you've engaged all of this. And when you engage all of this, you're balanced. Now, here's what happens. See, you're balanced begins to change because of the triple threat. I think like a lot of this stuff that's going on for people, why they're struggling, why the big struggle in society today, you know, coronavirus or whatever, is, is that we're not engaging our core value. And because of that, we're out of position. We're trying to stand up erect to try to deal with something that's going on around us, and we think we can muscle our way through it. You can't muscle your way through it. You've got to get yourself in a threatening position. I think most of the church, I'm just talking about the church, is in a defensive position. We're trying to stop the enemy from scoring. And what we're supposed to be doing, God did not call us as believers into a defensive posture. He called us into an offensive posture, and that is to go into all the world. You tell me, has any of this that's going on, has it stopped us from being able to go? Absolutely. There are people that are still not going. So what happens is, is that when you and I, when we, when we get into the triple threat, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute, when we talk about getting into that triple threat, we're getting ourselves into position to be a threat to the enemy, not to be threatened by the enemy. We're engaging our core value, our core strengths, that God, look, God is with us. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, look, lo, I am with you always to the end of the, I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I'll be with you guys. I'm going to be with you through thick and thin. You know, I sent my Holy Spirit. I'm going to be. All these are core issues in our life that we have to believe and adhere to that no matter how dark it gets around us, and it gets dark sometimes, no matter how dark it is, God has not abandoned us. 
That's core. And that, because see, if you think somehow God is causing this, or you think that somehow God won't help us to deal with this, or somehow man deserves this, then here's what ends up happening. Your core idea, your resident idea is saying that, I don't know if I can seek the Lord about this, and I don't know if fasting will really make a difference, because, I don't know, do I really have anything to say about what's going on? God is not the catalyst to your success. You're the catalyst. Look at your neighbor and say, you're the catalyst. You know, a catalyst is that thing that when it's added to whatever substances exist, it changes everything, right? You say, well, no, we need God. We got God. What we need is for you to be who God called you to be. Let me change that. What God needs is for you to be who God called you to be. Not a cowering in fear, worried about everything person. You're listening to the roar. The devil walks about like a, Peter said it, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not a real lion, he's a roaring lion. Maybe I'll have time to go there on another week, but I could take you to places where, look, there were things being said. They were flat-out lies, but all they were was to intimidate God's people to shut them down. That's all it was, was just to shut them down. And, I mean, they brought out all kinds of proof. There was was real proof that they they could destroy the Israelites. This is real proof. This is not imaginary. There's a million soldiers. But what is a million soldiers to your God? The triple threat. See, God's called us into a posture to be a threat in this world, not to cower in this world, not to hide and worry but to stand up and be strong for the Lord and in the power of his might. So, well, what if something bad happens? Look, something bad's going to happen no matter what, so why don't you just get in the mix and be a threat? A threat to darkness. A threat to evil. Hallelujah. A threat to evil. Glory to God. So what is the triple threat? Well, the triple threat is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. There's three aspects here. Of course, that's all three of them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one one part of it. The love of God or the love of the Father. That's another part of it. And the communion and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So the first that I want to talk to you about, because I think this is key. The first threat that you have, you know, just like we talked about past, shoot, dribble, the first threat that I want to talk to you about is the love of the Father. I think this one stops more people in their tracks than any other one. I think that's why God had Kara come up and read that verse today. I think that's why Chuck put, put got the songs. I I felt it. I mean, I felt it all during the worship service. See, it, it doesn't matter that I tell you God loves you 
What matters is what do you tell you? It is a threat to darkness if you believe the Father absolutely loves you. It is. Well, you know, Pastor, I believe God is love. Okay, so let me tell you about things that don't happen when we know God is love, all right? We don't feel sorry for ourselves. Because we know we're loved. We don't feel abandoned. Alone. Fighting by myself. Because we know that God loves us. We know that we're not trying to earn his love. We are talking to him from a place of love. That's huge. That's huge. We don't have to get his attention. We already have his attention. See, the love of the Father, the love of God to your and my life, how does that impact how we live our lives? How does it impact how we function? That we know that the Father is... Because, see, here's, and Kara brought it up, and I thought this was so cool. What we tend to do is we say, okay, well, I know God loves me, but all these things that I've done wrong, all these things that I've messed up in, all these things that have gone on in my life, I, I know he loves me, and I know he forgives me for all that, but, you know, still, it, it's still hard because I know what I'm really like. I know what I'm really like. I mean, I've got my past to base it off of. I've got my present to be. I know what I'm really like. I know how I've acted before. But when the Father says to you and I that he loves us, he is not saying, I love you conditionally. Our earthly dads might have done that to us, right? And our, a, man may, a man may have done that in our life. That if you do what I want, then I love you. And if you do, or at least I'll make you feel like you're loved. You know, if you get good grades, you get a job, take care of yourself, you know, get out of my house, right? Don't come back and ask for money. See? These are the things that the, the mind, the carnal mind, tries to understand about God's love, that we're trying to earn the Father's love. But see... The way that God loves us is not the way that mankind loves us. Think about this. What great love, the scripture says in Romans, what great love the, that God has shown to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, one of the passages says, who would die for an ungodly man? Who would do that? Someone might die for somebody who's good, but who would die for someone who doesn't deserve it? See how this changes, this changes the dynamics of our prayer life because when we come to God, we realize, look, I'm coming because of the love that you have for me, God. I'm not trying to plead, beg, trying to earn somehow your approval to get you to hear what I have to say. What ends up happening is, is that we, we can, in our lives, relate to God the way we related to our earthly fathers, and we try to get God to do what we want just like how we tried to get our earthly father. So if we threw a fit and then daddy finally responded, or if we begged and pleaded and nagged until he finally did what we wanted, then that's how we begin to relate to God, that we got to do all those things. 
do we really understand the love that the Father has for us? It's a threat to the kingdom of darkness that you would know that. You see, what I've found in my life, because I come from a long line of self-pityers. I come from a long line of people that know how to loathe themselves and loathe their lives and loathe everything about them. I come from a long line of people that fought depression because they just felt so worthless and didn't deserve good and were being cheated out of it like every, you know, everybody else is getting good, but I'm not. And what I learned out of all of that is all of that is a lie. And what God has said is the truth. Back in 19, I think it was in 1980, a long time ago, I was a junior in college, it was the summertime, and uh, I, you know, I was struggling with some sin in my life that I just was struggling to break free from. I mean, it was, and it doesn't matter what it was, I don't want to know your sin, so you don't need to know mine. But man, I was struggling, I mean, it, it was like, because you know, I would, I started reading the Bible, and that wasn't helping me feel better about my sin, it was actually helping me feel worse about it. Because then I'd read things like, he that knows to do good and does wrong is a sinner. And I'm thinking, well, Jesus, I, don't, I know I shouldn't do this, but I still did it, and, he's, and I'm struggling, and I'm just constantly going to God, and I'm pleading for forgiveness, and I'm so sorry. Well, one night I was at the Episcopal Church, and this Episcopal Church, I was at the time serving as an acolyte there, because I was really in my journey seeking God, and I actually had a good pastor. Roma King was his name, and uh, they their rule was they left the church unlocked, so I knew I could go down to the church and pray, so I went down to the church, and I'm, 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 I'm sitting in the pews, and I mean, I'm just really struggling, and all of a sudden, out a door that I know is locked, they would never leave that door unlocked, this man comes walking out. And he looks like Charles Manson. It's all the best way. Any of you have ever seen Charles Manson? Wild-eyed, bushy hair, beard. I mean, he, he, and he starts talking to me. And he, he says to me, he says, uh, uh, you know, he, start, he says, what's your name? And I, so I told him my first name because I thought, well, I'm not telling him my last. He said, no, I want to know your last name too. And so I told him. And, and then he looked at me, and this is what he said. I love you. And then he was gone. Now, I'd love to tell you at that moment in my life that I was like, whoa, God loves me. You know what my brain was saying? Get the heck out of here. Are y'all here? I mean, it, was, it scared me. It was nothing. But as I'm reflecting, I'm sitting out in the car thinking about whether I should call the authorities or what I should do. You know, I don't know what to do. And, uh, I'm talking, the Lord says, no, son, I wanted some, you to see some, I wanted you to hear someone say that to you. I sent an angel to do that, to tell you that. What that changed for me at that moment in my life was to know that my sin was not stopping God from loving me. That I might be disappointed in myself, but God is never disappointed in me. 
Now, I'm not going to take time to turn to it, but I'll tell you about two passages. These are really cool. They're both in Matthew chapter 9. You can look them up later. Matthew 9, 2, where Jesus comes up to the leper, and he's dealing with this guy that, no, he's, yeah, he's a, I think he's a leper. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Sorry. He wants to be healed. And this is what the Lord says to him. He says, and it, it's so cool because you'd miss it if you didn't look deep at it. He said, he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And you know, when I read that, I thought, why in the world did he call him son? We go just 15 verses later. Matthew 9, 17. A woman with the issue of blood comes to Jesus. Just 15 verses later. All in the same chapter, Mike. And he looks at this woman and he says, Daughter, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Why did he say daughter? Why did he say son? Because that has everything to do with your position. That has everything to do with the point of view that you're talking from. I want you to think about this. My son can talk to me different than you can talk to me. He talks to me from a place of relationship. I'm his dad. When he talks to me, he talks to me as I am his. I'm not his buddy. I'm his dad. My daughter, when she talks to me, she talks to me as my, my dad. If I have something that I could give to her, she doesn't have to... Oh, Daddy, please, please, Daddy, Daddy, could I have, please, Daddy, please, 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 Daddy, would, Daddy, if you really love me, you'd really, no. My daughter, in my relationship with her, if I have the means to bless her, I want to bless her. You know, for years, Sharon and I didn't have a way to bless our kids. Now we have a way to do it. We're blessed so we can be a blessing. Hallelujah. Our position with them, their position with us, changes from all other kids because they're my son, they're my daughter, they're in my family. Now, we have adopted kids that are in our family as well, that some grandchildren. When they come into our family, I say over them, we choose you. You're now not adopted, you're ours, you're part of our family. You belong under this family name, under the blessing that Grandma and I have. I've said this over them. I've held them in my arms. When they're sick, I say over them, this sickness will not overtake you and overcome you because you're in our family, and we are in the family of God, and we have a blood covenant. Whether they believe or not, or whether their parents believe or not, this parent does believe. And I make declaration, you're not under the curse of the law. You will not be under this bondage. You know, we tell all our families when they're dealing with adopted kids that when you deal with them now, you deal with them as your child. You don't deal with them. I remember when uh, one of our families, uh, 
had brought a, uh, they, were adopt, they were adopting a baby and it, uh, its parent had been a drug addict and so it had breathing problems and we used to hold her in the front row and just make declaration over her lungs. In Jesus' name, you're, because you're part of the family of God, you're in a Christian home, you belong to, these people are declaring this over you. We say your lungs are fully developed, you're fully, all, now look, not only does that work with the uh, physical problems that kids deal with, but you can also, for the social problems that kids deal with, and the spiritual problems that kids deal with, because they are not under the curse of the law. You're in our family now. <laughs> Wish I could get a good amen. Oh man, it's a threat. But I can say that because I don't have to go to God and ask him about that because I know that I'm talking to them and to God from a place of love. Now, I want you just as we wrap up here this morning, I want you just to do a little checkup from the neck up right now. How has your conversation with God gone this last week? Lord, I don't know why you're not helping me. Lord, I don't know why you're not doing this. Lord, I don't know why this isn't changing. Lord, I don't know why. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. You say, well, Pastor, your family's all doing great, and so you're preaching... You're, you don't have the, oh, look. I don't, one is because you'll never hear me talking about the problems I have because my faith is speaking about what I expect us to get to, not to where it is right now. I mean, if we were going to go by the natural stuff, no, man, I'm making declaration because I'm the funnel that God is using to bring the blessing. How's your prayer life sounded over your finances, what you're believing God for over your health? You don't have to earn God's ability to help you. You have to receive God's ability to help you. The enemy uses this one bigger than anything with God's people because he gets us feeling sorry for ourselves. You say, well, that just ticks me off that you're even saying that, Pastor. Well, you know what? Look. I, it picks me off too, okay? So I'll just get in to join your club. I wish, I wish, I wish it was different, but it's not. God's saying, look, you're, this is a, there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger plan. You know, I was whining about one of my kids, you know, to God the other day, Mona. I mean, I was just frustrated, and it didn't look like it was going so well. And I mean, I'm talking to the Lord, and here, here he comes along. You know, this is God, and he said, See, when you start learning the Bible, this is how you talk. You'll say, um, what does my word say? I said, well, you know what it says. <laughs> okay, smart aleck, what does it say? Oh, okay, train them up in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. He said, so son, do I have a plan for their life? Yes, obviously you must, because I trained them up in the way... Have you ever, as a parent, said, I never trained them to act like this? I didn't do this. He said, look, stop talking about what they're doing wrong. Start talking about the way you trained them. You trained them up in righteousness. You trained them up in the word. You trained them up in church. You trained them up to grow in, in my grace. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Then he reminded me. He said, you know, 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, who went all over the world preaching the gospel, he had two situations when he was confronted with the gospel. One, he lived in Jerusalem, so we know he knows about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He knew about the crucifixion. He could not have not known about it because he, he was there the whole time. And he's affiliated in the school of the Pharisees, so he knows full and well what's going on with Jesus, and he hates Jesus. He wants him crucified, and he is bitter towards this one who's trying to undo what they consider their Jewish power. And so he, 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 he totally rejects it. Then he's with Stephen, when Stephen is stoned and killed, and he's holding the coats for the people that are throwing rocks at him, which means he's the one that's witnessing. He's the witness of it all, that this man deserves to die. And nothing changed in Paul's life, Saul's life. He just continued to get further and further. Then he starts killing Christians and hauling them off to prison, and it gets worse and worse. But here's the thing. God had a plan. And Paul could not get away from God's plan. Now, this is for somebody here today. Look, what God told me was is that no matter how bad it might look, don't you ever give in to the bad. You give in to what you know that I got a plan for. Listen, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to my purpose because you're called, your kids are called, your grandkids are called, your family's called. And so you just realize I got a plan in all of this. That's not my plan that they're killing or going nuts or doing crazy stuff but I got a plan. Their days are numbered. You just rejoice, rest in me, have faith in me, and know that I love you and I haven't abandoned you. I'm working even when you're sleeping, dude, so shut up. The love of God. Threat number one the love of God. Threat number two, we'll get into next week, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Threat number three, now we're really moving. The communion of the Holy Spirit. Stand up with me if you would. I want our prayer team to come right now. Come on, whoever's in our prayer team this